Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, we did a story by R.H. Davis called Gallagher. We have two stories for you today by R.H. Davis. The first, Van Bibber's Burglar, and the second story, Van Bibber as Best Man, from his book of selected short stories titled Gallagher. And now our story, Van Bibber's Burglar. There had been a dance uptown, but as Van Bibber could not find her there, he accepted young Travers' suggestion to go over to Jersey City and see a go between Dutchy Mac and a colored person professionally known as the Black Diamond. They covered up all signs of their evening dress with their greatcoats and filled their pockets with cigars, for the smoke which surrounds a go is trying to sensitive nostrils, and they also fastened their watches to both keychains. Alf Alpin, who was acting as a master of ceremonies, was greatly pleased and flattered at their coming, and boisterously insisted on their sitting on the platform. The fact was generally circulated among the spectators that the two gents in high hats had come in a carriage, and this and their patent leather boots made them objects of keen interest. It was even whispered that they were the parties who were putting up the money to back the Black Diamond against the Hester Street Jackson. This in itself entitled them to respect. Van Bibber was asked to hold the watch, but he wisely declined the honor, which was given to Andy Spielman, the sporting reporter of the track and ring, whose watch case was covered with diamonds and was just the sort of watch a timekeeper should hold. It was two o'clock before Dutchy Max Backer threw the sponge into the air and three before they reached the city. They had another reporter in the cab with them besides the gentleman who had bravely held the watch in the face of several officers to do for him, and as Van Bibber was ravenously hungry, and as he doubted that he could get anything at that hour at the club, they accepted Spielman's invitation and went for a porterhouse steak and onions at the Owl's Nest, Gus McGowan's all-night restaurant on 3rd Avenue. It was a very dingy, dirty place, but it was as warm as the engine room of a steamboat, and the steak was perfectly done and tender. It was too late to go to bed, so they sat around the table with their chairs tipped back and their knees against its edge. The two club men had thrown off their greatcoats, and their wide shirt fronts and silk facings shone grandly in the smoky light of the oil lamps and the red glow from the grill in the corner. They talked about the life the reporters led, and the Philistines asked foolish questions, which the gentlemen of the press answered without showing them how foolish they were. "'And I suppose you have all sorts of curious adventures,' said Van Bibber, tentatively. "'Well, no, not what I would call adventures,' said one of the reporters. "'I've never seen anything that could not be explained or attributed directly to some known cause, "'such as crime, or poverty, or drink. "'You may think at first that you have stumbled upon something strange and romantic, "'but it comes to nothing. "'You would suppose that in a great city like this, one would come across something that could not be explained away, something mysterious or out of the common, like Stevenson's Suicide Club. But I've not found it so. Dickens once told James Payne that the most curious thing he ever saw in his rambles around London was a ragged man who stood crouching under the window of a great house where the owner was giving a ball. While the man hid beneath the window on the ground floor, a woman wonderfully dressed and very beautiful raised the sash from the inside and dropped her bouquet down into the man's hand, and he nodded and stuck it under his coat and ran off with it. I call that now a really curious thing to see. 
"'but I've never come across anything like it, "'and I've been in every part of this big city, "'and at every hour of the night and morning, "'and I'm not lacking in imagination either. "'But no captured maidens have ever beckoned to me "'from barred windows, "'nor white hands waved from a passing hansom. "'Balzac and de Musset and Stevenson "'suggest they have had such adventures, "'but they never come to me. "'It is all commonplace and vulgar, "'and always ends in a police court "'or with a found drowned.' "'in the North River. "'McGowan, who had fallen into a doze behind the bar, "'woke suddenly and shivered "'and rubbed his shirt sleeves briskly. "'A woman knocked at the side door "'and begged for a drink, "'for the love of heaven, "'and the man who tended the grill "'told her to be off. "'They could hear her feeling her way "'against the wall and cursing "'as she staggered out of the alley. Three men came in with a hack driver "'and wanted everybody to drink with them, "'and became insolent when the gentleman declined.' and were in consequence hustled out one at a time by McGowan, who went to sleep again immediately with his head resting among the cigar boxes and pyramids of glasses at the back of the bar, and snored. "'You see,' said the reporter, "'it's all like this. Night in a great city is not picturesque, and it is not theatrical. It is sodden, sometimes brutal, exciting enough until you get used to it, but it runs in a groove. It is dramatic.' but the plot is old, and the motives and characters always the same. The rumble of heavy market wagons and the rattle of milk carts told them it was morning, and as they opened the door, the cold fresh air swept into the place and made them wrap their collars around their throats and stamp their feet. The morning winds swept down the cross street from the East River, and the lights of the street lamps and of the saloon looked old and tawdry. Travers and the reporter went off to a Turkish bath, and the gentleman who held the watch, and who had been asleep for the last hour, dropped into a nighthawk and told the man to drive home. It was almost clear now, and very cold, and Van Bibber determined to walk. He had the strange feeling one gets when one stays up until the sun rises of having lost a day somewhere, and the dance he had attended a few hours before seemed to have come off long ago, and the fight in Jersey City was far back in the past. The houses along the cross street through which he walked were as dead as so many blank walls, and only here and there a lace curtain waved out of the open window where some honest citizen was sleeping. The street was quite deserted. Not even a cat or a policeman moved on it, and Van Bibber's footsteps sounded brisk on the sidewalk. There was a great house at the corner of the avenue in the cross street on which he was walking, The house faced the avenue, and a stone wall ran back to the brown stone stable which opened on a side street. There was a door in this wall, and as Van Bibber approached it on his solitary walk, it opened cautiously, and a man's head appeared in it for an instant, and was withdrawn again like a flash, and the door snapped too. Van Bibber stopped and looked at the door, and at the house, and then up and down the street. The house was tightly closed, "'as though someone was lying inside dead, "'and the streets were still empty. "'Van Bibber could think of nothing in his appearance "'so dreadful as to frighten an honest man, "'so he decided the face he had had a glimpse of "'must belong to a dishonest one. "'It was none of his business,' he assured himself, "'but it was curious, and he liked adventure, "'and he would have liked to prove his friend the reporter, "'who did not believe in adventure, in the wrong.' So he approached the door silently, and jumped and caught at the top of the wall, and stuck one foot on the handle of the door, 
and, with the other on the knocker, drew himself up and looked cautiously down on the other side. He had done this so lightly that the only noise he made was the rattle of the doorknob on which his foot had rested, and the man inside thought that the one outside was trying to open the door, and placed his shoulder to it and pressed against it heavily. Van Bibber, from his perch on the top of the wall, looked down directly on the other's head and shoulders. He could see the top of the man's head only two feet below, and he also saw that in one hand he held a revolver, and that two bags filled with projecting articles of different sizes lay at his feet. It did not need explanatory notes to tell Van Bibber that the man below had robbed the big house on the corner, and that if it had not been for his having passed when he did, the burglar would have escaped with his treasure. His first thought was that he, Van Bibber, was not a policeman, and that a fight with a burglar was not in his line of life, and this was followed by the thought that though the gentleman who owned the property in the two bags was of no interest to him, he was, as a respectable member of society, more entitled to consideration than the man with the revolver. The fact that he was now, whether he liked it or not, perched on the top of the wall like Humpty Dumpty, and that the burglar might see him and shoot him in the next minute, had also an immediate influence on his movements. So he balanced himself cautiously and noiselessly and dropped upon the man's head and shoulders, bringing him down to the flagged walk with him and under him. The revolver went off once in the struggle, but before the burglar could know how or from where his assailant had come, Van Bibber was standing up over him and had driven his heel down on his hand and kicked the pistol out of his fingers. Then he stepped quietly to where it lay and picked it up and said, "'If you try to get up, I'll shoot you.' He felt an unwarranted and ill-timedly humorous inclination to add, "'And I'll probably miss you.' But he subdued that. The burglar, much to Van Bibber's astonishment, did not attempt to rise, but sat up with his hands locked across his knees and said, "'Shoot ahead. I'd a damn sight rather you would.' His teeth were set and his face desperate and bitter and hopeless to a degree of utter hopelessness that Van Bibber had never imagined. "'Go ahead,' reiterated the man doggedly. "'I won't move. Shoot me.' It was a most unpleasant situation. Van Bibber felt the pistol loosening in his hand, and he was conscious of a strong inclination to lay it down and ask the burglar to tell him all about it. "'You haven't got much heart,' said Van Bibber, finally. "'You're a pretty poor sort of burglar, I should say.' "'What's the use?' said the man fiercely. "'I won't go back. I won't go back there alive. "'I've served my time forever in that hole. "'If I have to go back again, God help me if I don't do for a keeper and die for it. "'But I won't serve time there no more.' "'Go back where?' asked Van Bibber, gently, and greatly interested. "'To prison?' "'To prison, yes,' cried the man hoarsely. "'To a grave, that's where.' "'Look at my face,' he said. "'Look at my hair. "'That ought to tell you where I've been. "'With all the color gone out of my skin "'and all the life out of my legs. "'You needn't be afraid of me. "'I couldn't hurt you if I wanted to. "'I'm a skeleton and a baby, I am. "'I couldn't kill a cat. "'And now you're going to send me back again "'for another lifetime. "'For twenty years this time "'into that cold, forsaken hole. "'And after I'd done my time so well "'and worked so hard.' Van Bibber shifted the pistol from one hand to the other and eyed his prisoner doubtfully. "'How long you been out?' he asked, seating himself on the steps of the kitchen and holding the revolver between his knees. 
The sun was driving the morning mist away, and he had forgotten the cold. "'I got out yesterday,' said the man. Van Bibber glanced at the bags and lifted the revolver. "'I sure didn't waste much time,' he said. "'No,' answered the man sullenly. "'No, I didn't. I knew this place, and I wanted money to get west of my folks, and the society said I'd have to wait till I earned it, and I couldn't wait. I haven't seen my wife for seven years, nor my daughter. Seven years, young man, think of that. Seven years. Do you know how long that is? Seven years without seeing your wife or your child? And they're straight people, they are, he added hastily. My wife moved west after I was put away and took another name, and my girl never knew nothing about me. She thinks I'm away at sea. I was to join them. That was the plan. And I thought I could lift enough here to get the fare. And now, he added, dropping his face in his hands, I've got to go back. And I had meant to live straight after I got west. God help me, but I did. Not that it makes much difference now. And I don't care whether you believe it or not, neither. "'he added, fiercely. "'I didn't say whether I believed it or not,' "'answered Van Bibber, with grave consideration. "'He eyed the man for a brief space without speaking, "'and the burglar looked back at him, "'doggedly and defiantly, "'and with not the faintest suggestion of hope in his eyes, "'or of appeal for mercy. "'Perhaps it was because of this fact, "'or perhaps it was the wife and child that moved Van Bibber, "'but whatever his motives were, he acted on them promptly.' "'I suppose, though,' he said, "'I ought to give you up.' "'I'll never go back alive,' said the burglar quietly. "'Well, that's bad, too,' said Van Bibber. "'Of course, I don't know whether you're lying or not, "'and as to your meaning to live honestly, "'I very much doubt that. "'But I'll give you a ticket to wherever your wife is, "'and I'll see you on the train.' "'and you can get off at the next station "'and rob my house tomorrow night "'if you feel that way about it. "'Throw those bags inside that door "'where the servant will see them "'before the milkman does, "'and walk on out of here ahead of me. "'Keep your hands in your pockets "'and don't try to run. "'I have your pistol, you know.' "'The man placed the bags inside the kitchen door "'and with a doubtful look at his custodian "'stepped out into the street and walked, "'as he was directed to do, "'toward the Grand Central Station.' Van Bibber kept just behind him, and kept turning the question over in his mind as to what he ought to do. He felt very guilty as he passed each policeman, but he recovered himself when he thought of the wife and child who lived in the West, and who were straight. "'Where to?' asked Van Bibber, as he stood at the ticket office window. "'Helena, Montana,' answered the man, with, for the first time, a look of relief. Van Bibber bought the ticket and handed it to the burglar. "'I suppose you know,' he said, "'that you can sell that at a place downtown for half the money.' "'Yeah, I know that,' said the burglar. "'There was a half hour before the train left, "'and Van Bibber took his charge into the restaurant "'and watched him eat everything placed before him, "'with his eyes glancing all the while to the right or left. "'Then Van Bibber gave him some money "'and told him to write to him, and shook hands with him. The man nodded eagerly and pulled off his hat as the car drew out of the station, and Van Bibber came downtown again with the shop girls and clerks going to work, still wondering if he'd done the right thing. He went to his rooms and changed his clothes, took a cold bath, and crossed over to Delmonico's for his breakfast, 
and while the waiter laid the cloth in the café, glanced at the headings in one of the papers. He scanned first with polite interest the account of the dance on the night previous, and noticed his name among those present. With greater interest he read of the fight between Dutchy Mac and the Black Diamond, and then he read carefully how Abe Hubbard, alias Jimmy the Gent, a burglar, had broken jail in New Jersey, and had been traced to New York. There was a description of the man, and Van Bibber breathed quickly as he read it. "'The detectives have a clue of his whereabouts,' the account said. "'If he's still in the city, they're confident of recapturing him. But they fear that the same friends who helped him break jail will probably assist him from the country, or to get out west.' "'Yeah, they may do that,' murmured Van Bibber to himself, with a smile of grim contentment. "'They probably will.' Then he said to the waiter, "'Oh, I don't know. Some bacon and eggs and green things and coffee.' "'Just another day in the city. R. H. Davis writes some pretty good stories. Hope you enjoyed this one.' "'We'll return with our second story right after these sponsor messages.' It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And now, Van Bibber as Best Man. And now our second story. Young Van Bibber came up to town in June from Newport to see his lawyer about the preparation of some papers that needed his signature. He found the city very hot and close, and as dreary and empty as a house that's been shut up for some time while its usual occupants are away in the country. As he had to wait over an afternoon train, and as he was downtown... "'he decided to lunch at a French restaurant near Washington Square, "'where someone had told him you could get particular things "'particularly well-cooked. "'The tables were set on the terrace with plants and flowers about them "'and covered with a tricolored awning. "'There were no jangling horse-car bells nor dust to disturb him, "'and almost all the other tables were unoccupied. "'The waiters leaned against these tables "'and chatted in a French argot, "'and a cool breeze blew through the plants and billowed the awning, "'so that on the whole... Van Bibber was glad he had come. There was, beside himself, the old Frenchman scolding over his late breakfast. Two young artists with Van Dyke beards, who ordered the most remarkable things in the same French argot that the waiter spoke, and a young lady and a young gentleman at the table next to his own. The young man's back was toward him, and he could only see the girl when the youth moved to one side. She was very young and very pretty, and she seemed in the most excited state of mind from the tip of her wide-brimmed pointed French hat to the points of her patent leather ties. She was strikingly well-bred in appearance, and Van Bibber wondered why she should be dining alone with so young a man. "'It wasn't my fault,' he heard the youth say earnestly. "'How could I know he would be out of town? "'And anyway, it really doesn't matter. "'Your cousin is not the only clergyman in the city.' "'Of course not.' "'said the girl, almost tearfully. "'But they're not my cousins, and he is, "'and that would have made it so much, "'oh, so very much different. "'I'm awfully frightened.' "'Runaway couple,' commented Van Bibber to himself. "'Most interesting. 
"'Read about him often. Never seen him. Most interesting.' He bent his head over an entree, but he could not help hearing what followed, for the young runaways were indifferent to all around them, and though he rattled his knife and fork in a most vulgar manner, they did not heed him nor lower their voices. "'Well, what are you going to do?' said the girl, severely, but not unkindly. "'It doesn't seem to me that you're exactly rising to the occasion.' "'Well, I don't know,' answered the youth easily. "'We're safe here, anyway. Nobody we know ever comes here, and if they did, they're out of town now. You go on and eat something. I'll get a directory and look up a lot of clergymen's addresses, and then we can make out a list and drive round in a cab until we find one who has not gone off on his vacation.' "'We ought to be able to catch the Fall River boat back at five this afternoon. "'Then we could go right on to Boston from Fall River tomorrow morning "'and run down to Narragansett during the day.' "'They'll never forgive us,' said the girl. "'Oh, well, that's all right,' exclaimed the young man cheerfully. "'Really, you're the most uncomfortable young person I ever ran away with. "'One might think you were going to a funeral. "'You were willing enough two days ago, and now you don't help me at all.' "'Are you sorry?' he asked, and then added, "'Please don't say so, even if you are.' "'No, not sorry exactly,' said the girl. "'But indeed, Ted, it's going to make so much talk. "'If we only had a girl with us, or if you had a best man, "'or if we had witnesses, as they do in England, "'and a parish registry, or something of that sort, "'or if Cousin Harold had only been at home to do the marrying.' The young gentleman called Ted did not look, judging from the expression of his shoulders, as if he were having a very good time. He picked at the food on his plate gloomily, and the girl took out her handkerchief and then put it resolutely back again and smiled at him. The youth called the waiter and told him to bring a directory, and as he turned to give the order, Van Bibber recognized him, and he recognized Van Bibber. Van Bibber knew him for a very nice boy of a very good Boston family named Standish, "'and the younger of two sons. "'It was the elder who was Van Bibber's particular friend. "'The girl saw nothing of this mutual recognition, "'for she was looking with startled eyes at a hansom "'that had dashed up the side street and was turning the corner. "'Ted! Oh, Ted!' she gasped. "'It's your brother. There, in that hansom. "'I saw him perfectly plainly. "'Oh, how did he find us? What shall we do?' "'Ted grew very red.' "'and then very white. "'Standish,' said Van Bibber, "'jumping up and reaching for his hat. "'Pay this chap for these things, will you? "'And I'll get rid of your brother.' "'Van Bibber descended the steps, "'lighting a cigar as the elder Standish "'came up them on a jump. "'Hello, Standish,' shouted the New Yorker. "'Wait a minute. Where are you going?' "'Why, it seems to rain Standishes today. First I see your brother, then I see you. "'What's on? "'You've seen him?' "'cried the Boston man eagerly. "'Yes, and where is he? "'Was she with him? "'Are they married? "'Am I in time?' "'Van Bibber answered these different questions "'to the effect that he had seen young Standish "'and Mrs. Standish not half an hour before, "'and that they were just then taking a cab for Jersey City "'once they were to depart for Chicago. "'The driver who brought them here "'and who told me where they were "'said they could not have left this place "'by the time I would reach it,' "'said the elder brother doubtfully. "'That's so,' said the driver of the cab, who had listened curiously. "'I brought him here not more than half an hour ago. "'Just had time to get back to the depot. "'They can't have gone long.' "'Well, they have,' 
said Van Bibber. However, if you get over to Jersey City in time for the 2.30, you can reach Chicago almost soon as they do. They're going to the Palmer House, they said. Thank you, old fellow, shouted Standish, jumping back into his hansom. It's a terrible business. A pair of young fools. Nobody objected to the marriage. Only too young, you know. Ever so much obliged. Don't mention it, said Van Bibber politely. Now then, said that young man, as he approached the frightened couple trembling on the terrace, I've sent your brother off to Chicago. I do not know why I selected Chicago as a place where one would go on a honeymoon, but I'm not used to lying, and I'm not very good at it. Now if you will introduce me, I'll see what can be done toward getting you two babes out of the woods. The young standish said, Miss Cambridge, this is Mr. Cortland Van Bibber, of whom you've heard my brother speak. And Miss Cambridge said she was very glad to meet Mr. Van Bibber, even under such peculiarly trying circumstances. Now what you two want to do, said Van Bibber, addressing them as though they were just about fifteen years old, and he were at least forty, is to give this thing all the publicity you can. What? chorused the two runaways, in violent protest. Certainly, said Van Bibber, you are about to make a fatal mistake. You are about to go to some unknown clergyman of an unknown parish, who would have married you in a back room, without a certificate or a witness, just like any eloping farmer's daughter and a lightning rod agent. Now it's different with you two. Why you are not married respectably in church, I don't know, and I don't intend to ask. But kind providence has sent me to you to see that there is no talk nor scandal, which is such bad form, and which would have got your names into all the papers. I'm going to arrange this wedding properly, and you will kindly remain here until I send a carriage for you. Now just rely on me entirely, and eat your luncheon in peace. It's all going to come out right, and allow me to recommend the salad, by the way, which is especially good. Van Bibber first drove madly to the little church around the corner, where he told the kind old rector all about it, and arranged to have the church open and the assistant organist in her place, and a district messenger boy to blow the bellows, punctually at three o'clock. And now, he soliloquized, I must get some names. It doesn't matter much whether they happen to know the high contracting parties or not, but they must be names that everybody knows. Whoever's in town will be lunching at Delmonico's, "'and the men will be at the clubs. "'So he first went to the big restaurant, "'where, as good luck would have it, "'he found Mrs. Reggie Van Art "'and Mrs. Jack Peabody, "'and the Mrs. Brookline, "'who had run up to sound for the day "'on the yacht Minerva of the Boston Yacht Club. "'And he told them how things were, "'and swore them to secrecy, "'and told them to bring what men they could pick up. "'At the club he pressed four men into service "'who knew everybody, and whom everybody knew.' and when they protested that they'd not been properly invited, and that they only knew the bride and groom by sight, he told them that didn't make any difference, as it was only their names he wanted. Then he sent the messenger boy to get the biggest suite of rooms on the Fall River boat, and another one for flowers, and then he put Mrs. Reggie Van Arndt into a cab and sent her after the bride, and as best man, he got into another cab and carried off the groom." "'I've acted either as best man or usher forty-two times now,' said Van Bibber, as they drove to the church, "'and this is the first time I ever appeared in either capacity in a rush of leather shoes and a blue serge yachting suit. "'But then,' he added, contentedly, "'you ought to see the other fellows. One of them's in a striped flannel.' 
"'Mrs. Reggie and Miss Cambridge wept a great deal on the way uptown, "'but the bride was smiling and happy when she walked up the aisle "'to meet her prospective husband, "'who looked exceedingly conscious before the eyes of the men, "'all of whom he knew by sight or by name, "'and not one of whom he'd ever met before. "'But they all shook hands after it was over, "'and the assistant organist played the wedding march, "'and one of the club men insisted on pulling a cheerful "'and jerky peal on the church bell in the absence of the janitor.' "'and then Van Bibber hurled an old shoe and a handful of rice, "'which he had thoughtfully collected from the chef at the club, "'after them as they drove off to the boat. "'Now,' said Van Bibber, with a proud sigh of relief and satisfaction, "'I will send that to the papers, "'and when it is printed tomorrow, "'it'll read like one of the most orthodox "'and one of the smartest weddings of the season. "'Yet I can't help thinking.' "'Well?' said Mrs. Reggie. "'as he paused doubtfully. "'Well, I can't help thinking,' continued Van Bibber, "'of Standish's older brother racing around Chicago "'with the thermometer at 102 in the shade. "'I wish I'd only sent him to Jersey City.' "'It just shows,' he added mournfully, "'that when a man is not practiced in line, "'he should leave it alone.' "'R.H. Davis can really paint a picture with words. "'Great, great story. "'Enjoyed that a lot. "'Hope you did, too.' If you enjoy our stories here at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, please don't hesitate to send us a review, especially you Apple listeners. We appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners find us. Also, we do appreciate our Patreon supporters very much. I don't mention Patreon often enough, but Patreon is where some of our supporters go to give us financial support. Three, four, five dollars a month is what they invest in our 1001 network, and they are greatly, greatly appreciated. Give it a try yourself, and you'll feel good about yourself. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. As you know, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales comes out every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 12 noon. Thank you so much for being a part of it and following us. We appreciate it. Until next time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.